Oh, hey. Hi, it's Crystal. Welcome to the second episode of the We Believe You Pod. I'm so thankful you're here. I was just sitting here thinking about you, thinking about listeners, thinking about community, and just wondering, like, should we start a Facebook thing? Should we uh, call ourselves something? I almost opened this up with, uh, hey, believers. And then I was like, that's just like, I don't know. That's so Marin-esque. And I just you know, what, what do we, what should we do? I can't do this alone. So listen, email me, tell me what you think, comment on something, tell me the things that you're thinking. Um, how do we do this? How do we grow together? Uh, we're open. I am open. We here at the, we believe you pot are open. We, um, we need direction and to build community, you need input. So I'm wondering what you're thinking, if anything at all. I'm just thankful that I'm rambling on a microphone right now. And there's got to be at least one person that's listening to this. <laughs> ah! um, yeah, just thinking about what we can be together. That's all. Uh, who are we? Who am I? Oh, boy, that's a question I, I ask myself every single day of my life that I'll probably never have an answer to, to be quite honest. But um, for right now, please go to We Believe You Pod and all the social medias, follow us. And we are on Spotify. We are on Stitcher. I do not know if we will be on iTunes by the time this recording goes out. And um, that's okay. I'm really hoping that we are. And we'll go from there when we are up. But for right now, comment. Tell me the things. Tell me all the things. Um, so yeah, second episode. I am like, ah. So, you know, each time a guest comes on, it's different energy, it's different uh, holding space for somebody, um, you know, it, it, it manifests, everything manifests different for me, uh, just like it would for you. And we translate different things out of each person that comes on and exposes their vulnerabilities, exposes their story, um, and shows us who they are. Well, this next guest, Sophia, she, oh man. So first of all, we, I did, I'd never met her until she came on to record, um, which was absolutely intriguing. And by uh, the first time my eyes locked with hers, um, I, re- I recognized and felt Sophia, she has like a feminist air about her that many people spend their entire lives trying to find. Um, she is a published author, a very successful published author. Her memoir, Mother Winter, came out in February 2019. I read it. There is absolutely nothing else like it that I've ever read. Um, I actually read it and then I got it on Audible, which was read by her. It's still just as captivating. Um, her life, who she is, is just crazy. So I thought I'd take a second to read a little bit um, from her website about her book. Here we go. Sophia Shamiva tells us on the first page of her striking lyrical memoir, Mother Winter, to understand the end of her story, we must go back to her beginning. Now a mother herself in Mother Winter, Shamiva recounts her emotional journeys as an immigrant, an artist, and a woman raised without her mother. Can you even imagine dealing with all of those things? Like an immigrant, no mother. And I will tell you, uh, being around Sophia is incredible. She amplified my energy to just want to burn everything to the ground around me just by simply being her. A longing for a mother can do a number on you, I imagine. I, my mom is present in my life. And I love her. And I, so I don't 
actually know. Uh, but she gets into it and she gets into it a lot. I thought since Sophia is a writer by nature and a wonderful one, um, I would use a quote from her that I found inspiring. I took this from, um, basically I took this like internet stalking Sophia and I found an interview she did with Bomb Magazine. And she said, my trauma is in my daily life to such an extent that I cannot separate it from the way I drink a beer or cross the street or feel the dull chill of my father's hand when my kids accidentally hit me. Same with my prose and verse. I write from shame, and I am proud of my shame. I own it like a house without a mortgage. I just, I loved that quote. Um, and I love that she mentioned shame. I mean, it just, it, hell yeah, Sophia. Hell yeah. Because it's like, with trauma comes shame and there's nothing that you can really do about it except get help, right? And I don't know if it ever goes away for some. I don't know. I think it's up to each individual person and how they process that shame. And there is never a right way uh, or a wrong way to digest it and process it. But I love that she said she's proud of hers, right? It's pretty rad. Um, so before I finally let you listen to her, uh, she's amazing. Uh, she does mention a childhood trauma in our chat kind of early on, and I did not ask her questions about that. And I did not ask her questions about that specifically for a few reasons. One is because she it's written so beautifully in her book, um, and I think that's a proper outlet. And honestly. Sophia had a different agenda when she came on. So I wanted to honor um, all the things that she wanted to get to and hold the space that she really wanted. So we didn't go into too much detail about uh, one specific trauma that she experienced. Please know that you can read about it and you can learn more um, with Getting Mother Winter. I recommend it. And unlike other guests you may hear down the road, Sophia was a full disclosure guest. So um, that's why I'm using her first and last names in case you were wondering. And if you were wondering, but my hope is that when you're done listening to this, that you too would follow Sophia into the dark woods to burn something down. Because I know I would in a heartbeat. Um, she's a badass. And... Uh, you know, with, with feminism comes a little bit of gendered language. So we do use that. Uh, patriarchy is mentioned a lot, as it should be. Um, but I wanted to throw that out there. And uh, I hope that you enjoy it. And I'm so thankful you're here. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, go into this podcast with your uh, hearts open. No judgment. And I love you. Born in Leningrad, and now that's St. Petersburg um, because the Soviet Union no longer exists, and Russia went back to calling it St. Petersburg as it was originally built. Yeah, your yeah. book is um, mind blowing. I Thanks. well, under the Trump administration, when I'm listening to your book, mm -hmm. I'm I'm a little like, whoa, 
you know, mm-hmm. thrown thrown back to what that must have felt like. Yeah, I just did a, a fundraiser for um, refugees at, at Dig a Pony with a bunch of other writers and uh, who were also reading to raise some money for people separated at the border and, you know, the children in the cages. And um, what I said there was that I in 1989 when we left when my dad took me out of the country trying to do the right thing as a jewish refugee trying to do the right thing for himself um he separated me from my mother and so it's like a a, a story that goes back for any really person crossing borders in a hurry or under duress um and so my story is that i never got to see my mother again and I still don't know where she is. And so that was like a heavy trauma. And so hearing and seeing what's happening right now in our administration, and it has been happening forever, where for no good reason, we on purpose take children away from their parents. It's, you know, maybe never to be seen again or readopted by white people somewhere. It's yeah. horrific. Yeah, that is horrific. I can't imagine what that must feel like or felt like. Yeah, right. Because I was 11. And so by the time we got it took us um, close about a year to go through that vetting process. Like speaking of vetting, even back in 1989, to come into the country, we first were allowed to go to Vienna, and we waited there. Then we went and lived in a refugee camp. Um, in Italy then we got our own apartment because we had such a hard time getting sponsorship and finally um, there are like a number of, of uh, Jewish nonprofits that help people come to America I mean it's easier to go to Israel I guess Israel will take you if you're Jewish but um, so by the time we got here it was a year they like really really looked into us and made sure we we're the proper people to come into this country um and then you know shortly after that like I get my period and I'm just kind of oh grappling God. with a puberty and I don't even bother to ask for my mom because I think that when you have such a rupture that the concept um of, of the, the reality of asking for something that you may not get would be just too painful so I think I've always kind of worked from that angle yeah, and even under those circumstances with the what you were told about your mother. Right, right, that she's like a no-good alcoholic. I mean, and she, she was. She was mm-hmm. ill. You know, that's a disease. We all know that now, I think, in that country at that particular time. And, and still, uh, it's like the country is so misogynistic even more so than america is i think we're sort of like we're seeing through through the trump putin relationship that like america is um it's misogyny it's like let's rise to the russian levels you know um yeah so yeah and in that sense she was sort of like uh, an untouchable you know so to be taken away from her seemed just um and like my dad was like a savior and that's still kind of the story. Is it? I mean, for my family, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that way? I feel like this could have been done very differently. Um, yeah, I think my dad still is of the mindset that he was just like a stressed out do-gooder who was protecting me from a woman that would have ruined my life. And, and when apparently she had reached out that he just that he didn't want her to take advantage of us or try to like steal me away. Um, and so he felt like he was just doing the right thing and protecting me and that 
for a man to take on a maternal role at all, which is like the bar is so low for that. Oh God, um, it is. It really is. The, you know, it's like the fact that he just like, you know, kept me alive at all. Yeah. Didn't like sell me into sexual slavery, you know. Yeah, great yeah. Day. I read, I read in an article um, about your book. Uh, I'm sure that because your book is a memoir, so mm -hmm. it tells the story. I'm sure that caused a little bit of... <clears throat> Maybe, I don't want to say conflict and assume, but I'm sure some conversation between you and your father. Yes, lots. I mean, we've been having these conversations forever. I'm not uh, a wallflower. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, we've had conversations where I used to write like zines in, in high school about the physical violence and the abuse. And my dad would like find them and like write me back on them. Um, I, you know, I, I, I didn't get away with much because I was really vocal and open and honest with him and interrogated him about everything except really my mother like that was again like that was a mute subject um but there are other things and so when I came out to my dad really like against my stepmother's uh wishes retroactively after I told him she was like you shouldn't have told him when I told my dad I think I was 15 or 16 I was starting to feel suicidal and I realized it's because of the trauma I suffered in Italy when we were going through the immigration process like right before we left Italy this the 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 predator that ended up uh, sexually assaulting me um, uh, he had worked like around my dad at the gas station where my dad worked so it was like it was a perfect thing it's usually always somebody you know somebody you trust somebody who maybe is watching you for a while knows you're vulnerable kind of knows that you won't tell and if you do tell that it will have no consequence or you won't be believed and so um you know as a, as a teenager sort of like I think I was just just trying to even understand like why am I dissociating what is dissociation why do I feel out of my body like why am I still feeling kind of like regressed in some ways or like more like a child in some ways and so it just kind of came out I told my dad and he went um about the, about the incident about this man and he went and cried in the park and came back and you know he like, he like hugged me and he was really sweet to me but he never spoke to me about it again which um, I think is better than it goes for some people in their families because disappointing a father or being um, defiled and to tell your father is like a really taboo thing to do. It's it's as though it's it's as though all girls have to be chaste or good for their dads, and so I was no longer you know I was damaged goods in a way, and so my stepmom at the time was like you know, you shouldn't have told him, you kind of like, you ruined his life, like you forever kind of marked it in, you know, his head. Um, and so, so my dad and I have, you know, I've been open with him about pretty much everything, you know. That's crazy. So he believed you. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't question me. He, you know what really happened? What happened is what kind of ends up happening in all of my relationships with men is I had to take care of him even though I was the one oh who was God. being hurt. Yes. That's what happened. Um, he, it, it was really kind of him to sort of like, you know, give me a hug and stuff. But, you know, it was sort of in the context of like his tears, him freaking out, him not being able to sort of like hold back his own emotion, which some ways gave me some mirroring like it gave me 
validation that somebody is like seeing me and it pains them so much that I was in pain but because the book stopped there he didn't really offer me anything beyond his own pain then I had to constantly sort of be like are you okay and feel guilty and so that carried on to you know into every single relationship I've ever had with a guy right to like try to teach him how to listen or ask questions or be emotionally available and then they fail and then you kind of try to make them feel better about that and they stonewall and it's just it's a cycle the cycle but in reality what I'm what I'm hearing you say is that he physically abused you growing up yeah totally and then at 11 it did the assault happen at 11 so the 11 is when yeah this man in italy this italian man assaulted me yeah and then you had to leave the and country we left the country to come to america within that same year within that week oh my god yeah yeah that's crazy yeah he waited until the end yeah so we were, it was like a farewell dinner right yeah yeah hmm. and then your stepmom shamed you Shortly after that, yes. essentially. Yes. Because it was about your father. Like, that's the pattern. True. Seems to be mostly about. And it is, I mean, a lot of men kind of have that. That, And I don't know if that is a historical learned thing in our society. Because I like to, I instantly, like when you were talking about that, I thought about how he's not American and how different that is. And like, what's his culture and the background Mm-hmm. of your father how different it is from mine but then it's really not patriarchy is kind of like a common language yeah. everywhere it's not that different at all yeah it's just language of the oppressor yeah, yeah. it's really so then you come here after experiencing all of that mm-hmm. and then what happens um well you have a daughter and i know <laughs> what happens is you just kind of get hit by like a train a train of <laughs> pimples and hormones and boys and and girls being mean to each other um what ended up happening was i became like inadvertently like this marked creature i i went to a, a hebrew school where um the you know the boys and girls were in separate buildings but they still like commingled and stuff and still were interested in each other very much so and so I ended up getting like a a reputation as a slut and and you know there was a lot of like girl on girl like horizontal violence and a lot of like emotional violence and just just we were all kind of sadistic to each other um I I was never like you know um like a, a leader of any kind of pack or anything like that I was like that kid learning English and and um I was just learning how to like bathe properly and like take care of myself and my body a little bit more I was just always kind of like the smelly kid whose dad was like you know whatever take a take a bath and you're like oh I've actually have this traumatized body where like I've had you know as a child like I had incontinence and like I wet the bed and it just really frustrated my family and at the time I don't think that they could even fathom the fact that right. it was my trauma in the from my body because when that when the man in Italy assaulted me it really wasn't the first time that I had experienced sexual trauma um so that was like you know that's like was like what we call a compound fuck up a compound fracture on on my body um but so I managed through junior high school and then it was in high school um where I kind of took matters into my own hands and told my dad I will no longer be 
doing this like good girl thing I'm not going to be going to a Hebrew school for high school I just won't do it and you know he threatened me and there were physical fights and but because he just started NYU himself he just started college and he was like kind of overwhelmed he like it was already like September and it was just me and my stepmom sitting at home you know so we just like walked over to to um the new you know the high school that I was assigned for and I ended up going to James Madison where uh, Bernie Sanders used to go to and it was awful it was a shit show it was like 3,700 people oh crammed into a ginormous building with metal detectors where we were just like it was it was insane um, and I ended up spending two years there like also really feeling heavily traumatized the whole time either like in a fog or um just re-experiencing trauma and then when I had like my first love my first boyfriend and got to you know negotiate like what I do and I don't want to do feeling pressured to have sex with him when I wasn't ready I started to sort of come to terms with like what has happened to me and discover feminism at the exact same time so it really did save my life I mean he broke up with me because I, mainly because I wasn't going to lose my quote unquote virginity to him. I mean, I, right. I whatever. I was a, a virgin in this way, right? And so um, after he broke up with me, I spent like this summer just like maudlin, sad, suicidal, freaking out about everything. And, um, you know, had uh, an experience where I took a ton of pills and tried to kill myself. And really, oh my I tried to kill myself because I was isolated because I was vulnerable because I lost community because I had like nothing to do nowhere to go no, no one to be no one to talk to about any of this stuff and so you know isolation and yeah. and 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 yeah I think it's it's feeling like not just like an outsider but like there was never an insight to be in. yeah like I'm sorry you got me <laughs> um sense of belonging like you belong somewhere yeah, it's community right like you have a role you are yeah. you have a place where people accept you yes and that already you feel like you live in a society where like girls weren't valued and my boyfriend just wants to you know you know fuck me or own me or i'm just like yeah. either i have to be the quiet thing at dinner or okay, whatever what what year is this um this is 1994 okay so we're Kurt still Cobain dies courtney love is the villain we're in 1994 we're in high school yeah and so i felt like even though i was like a really strong for whatever reason confident person even though my dad abused me he instilled a lot of confidence in me to be um um, a go-getter, you know, like this immigrant go-getter. I had to be better than him, mightier than him. I had to be like Athena. And so it, I was really traumatized. That summer was like the summer of trauma. But like that's when I came into my own. That's when like I I asked to switch, you know, schools. And I went to a school that was an alternative school where there was an actual feminist newspaper that was run from this school that started in the 70s. Like Spike Lee went there and um a number of uh, of of people that went on to do great things went there but it was like really under the radar like no no grades like it didn't have the pressure that was killing me in society that that was saying like you know what there's no reward there's no center that's gonna hold you are not anything or anyone you don't belong we don't care about what happened to you but at the same time you have to be good 
and you have to like achieve and you have like in all of these ways and so there like I can go and like I can finally like be a fuck up and that really freed me and and I wasn't a fuck up in the end I just was like I didn't compete in the same you know like capitalist jail model system and I didn't have to be like the pretty girl or the ugly girl I didn't have to be like the cheerleader or the punk like you know the kids there were just like they're all kind of weird and trying and um and it was a very very diverse school in Coney Island and so we were like a mishmash together and so there I had community uh, you know and it was fraud and it was and it wasn't like perfect but I finally worked my way into um writing for fireworks the feminist newspaper and then fought my way into the editor position and would like cut class and sit there and like work on it and encourage uh, girls in the school to like write me letters about their assaults and you know would like print them and um would like write out like Yoko Ono lyrics and like I just kind of took like it was actually like my zine there weren't that many people who wanted to contribute um to it um and at the same time you know thank god for punk rock and riot girl because i found out that like there were other women who were shouting about their abuse that their abuse and their silence is what was killing them and um that like suicide prevention is really just being seen by an army of other girls and women who care about you but in the 90s we did have some women who were like I'm gonna come at you ugly loud ripped torn apart and they were saying that men have been confessing traumas of war and atrocities and the things that they do together for a long time. And we think that they are heroes and we honor them and we have, you know, we salute them. We have parades for them. And like, where's our parade? Like we Mm -hmm. have been devastated by the wars that men have brought back home to us. Um, It's been ongoing. There's never been a time where women didn't have to be like teaching their daughters to not get raped rather than teach the men not to rape. And um, I, I'm glad that that happened. I'm glad that there were women that were also going crazy and spoke out and picked up microphones and were writing and were writing in ways that were accessible to me that weren't like just an academic you know journals and stuff like that like in the 90s I would like go into bathrooms and like write down the the name and the phone number of a guy that I heard had raped somebody and just be like be aware of this guy um, that's what we had to do so when you go to the bathroom you'd be like well he's really cute like she's probably a lying stupid bitch because she's jealous and she wants to fuck him too but maybe like maybe my like spidey sense will be on like maybe when mm-hmm. like I'm blackout drunk with this guy and he's being insane to me like maybe I'll leave mm-hmm. so that was like my hope yeah no that's awesome and then you went to evergreen yeah so evergreen is here in olympia washington and that was like a big big jolt cultural shift that i wanted and needed because the things that were feeding me were mostly coming from the pacific northwest at the time and so i knew that living in new york city that as much as i loved it and like i felt like a New Yorker that it just my personality and everything that I've been through I just could no longer handle that level of capitalist culture like I wasn't also going to go to NYU and be a striver and like do all those things like I wasn't going to work myself to the bone I wanted to be like 
a lazy loser <laughs> discovering feminism slowly and make my own money in you know maybe like not mainstream ways so then I took up working at a peep show so that I can just like work on the weekends make the money real real quick get in get out and then like have all the time in the world to like stare up at my ceiling or like go hang out with friends and just like live a life because I felt like I'd I had been working for the man my whole life. Like I'd been taking care of my father. I'd been, you know, taking care of the household. When I was in Italy as an 11-year-old, I had a job. Like I stood on the corners and I washed windshields. Like I was like the mop and squeegee girl. Like I'd been hustling and, um, you know, working either at Burger King or babysitting. Like I'd just been working, 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 working since I was a very small child. Um, and so I just sort of wanted to minimize that as much as possible and turn around the labor, the unpaid labor that I did in this world of men sexualizing me all the time and actually like monetize it for once. And so that made sense to me. That's awesome. <laughs> I guess. It's awesome that you had such an awareness. I had other women to look up to. I mean, like I did and I, yeah, I, and it, some, it was like in the back of my head, but like I knew that there were other women that had, had done this, you know, that they existed and I was sort of mirroring a little bit of what they were doing, but making it my own or making sense out of it in my own ways. And yeah, like I got, we're, we have courage from other women. Like we have this legacy we need to tap into. Mm -hmm. you're, you're absolutely right. You're yeah. absolutely right. So you go to Evergreen, you major in, I'm assuming, writing of some sort? I didn't. I was doing visual art at the time. Ah. I did. Yeah, I mostly did visual art. I still paint, still sell paintings every once in a while. I still keep a studio here. Um, yeah, so I started out in visual art. And I dropped out, went back to New York, came back. I, it was, and yeah, the trauma kept resurfacing and things kept coming back up for me. And at that point, you know, just working in the sex industry, even with my like very feminist lens, still kind of, it both opened me up and closed me off. And so I got to see just how much men hate women. <laughs> On a, on a very different scale. Um, and then I also got to have camaraderie with other women, even though we were in competition with each other, just how much we needed each other and just how much we had each other's backs uh. and all the ways that, you know, we had to perform together or look after each other. Like, you know, two girl shows like sell more. So if it's like if I'm eating you out and playing with this vibrator with you, like we'll get more money. And so it's like we, there's a lot of collaborative and cooperative play. And so there's like a sense of play in an overly adult world which you know calling it adult entertainment is like interesting because it is the place where for the most part the things that men look for are, are something that's more prepubescent or you're supposed to dress yourself up to look younger or you know we basically you have this daddy culture where mm -hmm. like men in their 50s date women in their 20s which is not just inappropriate but really just creates like incest culture and so you get a view into this like incest culture in there and so like the more you act like a little girl and the more you're needy and the more you're just like malleable the more money you make you mm -hmm. know like that really like 
uh, sort of like queen on top, like mm-hmm. self-assured yeah. woman. Yes. It doesn't really make as much money. Right. Really. Because, I mean, there's some men who want to be overpowered for the most part. They're there to not just consume you, but like to feel like they're better than you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of ego. Yeah, a lot of... <laughs> yeah, maybe it's ego, yeah. Yeah. Um. So you you get through school eventually. Come I back eventually here. got through school. I eventually applied for graduate school and went to the School of Visual Arts and became an art therapist. Awesome. Um, and that's how I figured out, because I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like I may, gave myself an expiration date. And nobody has to have one. There was one of my mm-hmm. best girlfriends there, Tasha. I think she was like 50. Like she was doing great. She was actually pulling lots of lots of money um, on the day shift because she knew psychologically how to deal with the customers and what they needed. But the point for me was that I believe it was 2003 and I was approaching 25 years old. It sounds really young now, but at the time I felt 79 and I was like yeah this this is it for me like I don't really know what I what else I kind of want to do for money but I can't really be doing this anymore so at that point is when I applied to graduate school and that saved me (laughs) gave me two more years to be like okay now I will just learn a new skill and a new trade and there is where I learned about Bessel van der Kolk and you know how the body keeps the score and how we keep trauma in the body and epigenetics and got to work with domestic violence survivors you know got to work with children who survived multiple traumas and got to have vicarious traumatization and freak out multiple times but at the same time kind of put myself back together and have like the texts and have the community and have you know, supervisors and teachers and mentors sort of have like a system that upheld me if I ever fell apart and had good therapy. So that's when I sort of was like, okay, like I'm entering an adult realm. And how were your like relationships at this point? Like as far as you dating people in general, how, how were they? up to this point in your life? I mostly tried to date like really nice men. Like I, I like the, who am attracted to or am I not attracted to was almost like, I don't know, like I just wanted to date men who I could be friends with. So I tried to do that for the most part. But when I ended up with, for the most part then, were men who were like feckless and hapless and, couldn't get off the dime and were very depressed like I just ended up being the mother for most of the partners that I had because I was so afraid of being with a man who might do what my dad did and beat me up or emotionally psychologically abuse me manipulate me also like how my father did and how I've seen men you know well I did I, I can time. I can relate to this so yeah. much so that I just it makes went me sick safe. but it was it was role it was the role you knew yes the role safe. I knew was a caretaker and that was a safe role for me and confident so I, role confident role confidence matters competent competent yes you, you can kill it you can yes. knock it out of the park yes <laughs> And then you get to also restage the anger that you feel at nobody taking care of you and then be mad at your partner rather Uh than your mom and dad for not taking care of you. And every partner I've ever had really did not know how to take care of me or offer me emotional support or caretaking. So I kept picking those partners and they were normally like, you know, I just wanted them like 
tall, hung, and completely incompetent. And I didn't really know that. It's just like what I gravitated to. And and some of the, some, you know, there was like one guy that I was with who was like mercilessly like, you know, like a mind fucker and was like awful and was heroin addict that I didn't re- even realize. And the, you know, whatever, there were like, like other guys here and there. But I, before I would get in like way too deep and when I started to feel myself get like, off the chain re-traumatized like I could I would know like I wouldn't be able to like eat and like I would all of a sudden would be like really agitated like I'd be like oh god yep that guy's like pushing on my mother leaving me for the alcohol thing like so that guy is way too dangerous I'm gonna go with the less dangerous guy and I also cheated a lot I I wasn't even aware that I was going to do it or I was like I just I was like yeah I would just put myself in situations where I would like test out what yielding felt like or like test out what crossing a boundary felt like and kind of also mirrored like what I witnessed with my dad who had multiple mistresses at all times and really still does maybe to this day. Um, And so, yeah. And I also wanted like that power and control that I saw men have where they got to go out there and just, you know, get it, take whatever they wanted and use sex for sex. And then what I realized a little bit later is what was happening with me is that the safe men that I was picking um, that so if like the animal attraction maybe wasn't there sometimes or even if there there was it would dissipate when I would get comfortable and we would get into like almost like a brother sister role and so I would get really comfortable I become your mother it would be like the situation where I am resentful because I'm doing all the labor all the emotional and financial and all the labor right and so then after a while I just sort of feel like you're my boy right and so like I'm no longer really attracted to you but I can't leave you I can't abandon you the way I've been abandoned so I'm just gonna like go and have this like you know little thing on the side real real quick and just we'll forget about it and I'll live with the guilt because living with the guilt is like what I'm really used to and so that was like a really bad cycle for me um um, that I I wanted to end when I got married and, and I did and I never like I never cheated on my husband but I was always kind of like on these weird margins where I would still like hang out with all of my single friends and we would like still go out and like flirt and I'd be like oh my god like almost right like I would almost mm-hmm. do something but not um, just sort of like keep a, a toe in my old to, life to feel to feel to feel because it, you get in those patterns and the cycles yeah. and it's so incredibly boring we raise men to become boys and we raise girls to be adults you know and mm-hmm. so like our little girls ha- have anxiety because they are little adults from day one yep like when my husband and I split up we split up because I kept being like just admit that you Yes. won't do this like I gave you this piece of mail and it's going to sit in your car for a month and then the, this bill won't get paid and then just why and so just admit it and it would be like easy 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 all right all right all right and so it was always it wasn't even placa- placating me it was placating the voice inside of himself his own super ego his own inner parent that he doesn't want to hear and that's just how it is. The only way that you can do it, I think, is to just either be in the relationship and disengage completely and just like 
I don't know, just not give a shit. Like my back went out because I was like, okay, like I guess it's either all on me and I'm going to buckle under the weight or I have to like not give a shit and then you have to become numb. So numb or aggressive. Yeah, when we squabble about um, the fact that like my husband didn't pick the doctor, he didn't pick the preschool. Oh yeah. He didn't do any of those things. The fact that we squabble over the fact that those things take a lot of time and that they're really important and that I would feel really taken care of if he had done some of that legwork and brought it to me and I got to lay back there and eat grapes and pick from A to B to C. That would be great. But we're, we can't agree on that because then we would have to agree on the trajectory of patriarchy and how we baby men okay. to be stay boys and and that's what it is happening with this whole entire sexual assault activism we're like we're still babying him well what about his career well, what about his oh, yeah. reputation oh well, yeah. he's just a nice family man don't ruin him well should we really boycott him da, da, da. What, what he did was it really bad enough it has to be bad enough you know and so we get back into that whole mindset of unless you were drug into the alley and got to collect the sperm and he's already the DNA bank already exists for him it didn't happen to you and so if you're constantly gaslit or like called names or if you're undercut at your job consistently that doesn't really count anymore so so okay okay you went through um you went through marriage and you are divorced oh my god we're still not even divorced okay but we've been separated for years years yeah Yeah. legality yeah we just you know i'm just i'm not pushing it because i would have to do all the work and i hear you it's really painful um but yeah but we are you know all but divorced and have been living separately for for some odd years um and so i dated during that time here and there and it was okay (laughs) and then um yeah I dated a really nice man who didn't work out with and then I dated um most recently for a year man who was just really like unhealthy and maybe like unhinged in a lot of ways um but we had so many things in common um just even like grow you know like he grew up in America but like we both grew up really poor and kind of grew up his household was a lot more stable than mine you know he had a mother growing up but also like in uh, you know parents not together household and then then relying on like counterculture and leaving the house as early as possible to do your own thing and he um he has a bookshop I'm a writer I read at his bookshop I met him I thought I was like oh you know how bad could this be he's just probably just a really bad drunk and that is probably all of it but you know he's a bad drunk who can get away with it in the way that if I was a bookstore owner who was just like a disheveled hot mess drinking almost every single day with you know and being a parent in front of people that way people would like run me out of town with pitchforks. They would just say like, she's this dumb drunk whore who like can't take care of anything. But he has like a concert of women who work for him for free basically at all times who will do his bidding. and Position of power. Yeah, I don't know. It's just people want community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people want community. People want a place to go. People need a cheers. People need like a place where they, you know, can you know belly up and people know their name and somebody will pat them on the back and be like hey like you belong here's your sack of grain like here's your thing and so that's kind of what happens and was this the first person Mm -hmm. since your divorce that you fell for 
would you say? Like I think so. I think the first person that I went out with seriously was a, like a good friend mm-hmm. and he had had a crush on me and so it was sort of like landing more of like in a bed of roses which was really an awful thing to do to my ex-husband because he was like tormented and felt left and was abandoned by me like I just basically was like out you go I'm so angry and then I started going out with this guy who was a friend and really I was so fucked up from from my husband like the things that were happening from me and my husband that any kind of love feelings or any kind of attachment that I felt towards that Mm -hmm. man were so muddy and I was so messed up like he just let me cry a lot and I Mm. love him for that but I don't know that that you know like it, it didn't feel right. like a, a free situation that I came into it mm-hmm. literally just felt like you know I left I left one jail and went to another jail kind of to and just so w- with this other gentleman you you let your guard down, and you then guess. four years later yeah, four years later or so mean. yeah I just kind of walked into such like when I had a lot of time to be by myself and things with Mike and I were relatively good and weirdly enough Mike and I were sort of this is my ex-husband uh, he's his name is in the book, so it's not like uh, I'm revealing too much. But um, we we were we started to kind of go back and forth too, being like, should we get back together? Should mm. we not? Like we were having some ambivalence, but underneath that ambivalence, I think he, maybe his was less, mine was bigger, and so I I I yeah I so there's just there was something going on in that front for me too where I was like kind of thinking like should I patch things up with him like did he have time to grow up in those four years like you know my kids still even though Mm -hmm. all that time went on they still asked about it they still wanted us back together like they every night would like be like we miss daddy or over there they'd be like Mm -hmm. we miss mom so it was like it was on my mind but then when I met um, my you know most recent ex-boyfriend it just kind of it all fell away because I think he was just that awful. Like I think I just finally met somebody who was that awful, who was that good at being awful, who was kind of like a narcissist near sociopath. Yeah. And you were open to receiving love. I mean, that's the thing is like you uh-huh. you were open and, and you were saying, I'm ready to be vulnerable. I think that's what happened because when I fell in love with Mike, I was like 25. Yeah. You know, and I actually met him when I was 19 in Olympia. He went, yeah. he was, you know, like I knew him from before, forever. Yeah. from forever ago. And so like being vulnerable with him was a little bit different and it happened yeah. to me like 15 years ago. And so I had like 15 years of like not really experiencing that. So yeah, I was complete, I was like wide open. I was like, yeah, like what's the worst thing that can happen? Like I would be honored and thrilled to have my heart broken by somebody who's worthy of breaking my heart right but really it's not that it's that this person carried every single toxic thing that you know a man can do to hold a woman down and he did them in these like steady sneaky fucked up ways where I still became you know like a free maid and a caretaker and I had to be his like adversary I had to be like faster smarter bigger better and there was just so much posturing from him and at the same time I had to like you know like I had to I had to like be be pregnant and 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 take care of everything else and not be upset either way make the decision and not be upset when things didn't go my way and so 
in the end, um, you know, he, yeah, he found out finally that I was pregnant. Because you went to L.A., right? I went to L.A. I couldn't talk to him on the phone. I found out. I came home. I went to Planned Parenthood, confirmed it, mailed him the letter in the mail because I was just, you know, I didn't want to go to his shop. Like, I really just did not want to see this person. I was so angry and I didn't want to, like, go to his turf and what felt like, you know. Right what was like our turf, like a place where we hung out every day and have this conversation. I didn't know how that would really go. Um, and so, yeah, when he got the letter, he called me. It was just sort of like I was on another uh, tour date. And yeah, it was just sort of like another hapless, helpless man. It was like, it's whatever you want to do. Like, I'm here for you. And like, you know, just kind of like asking him where he's been and he was just you know like out gallivanting like just trying to score pussy not like there's anything wrong with going out to get laid but like he wasn't like sitting at home being like like what do I do like he didn't say how are you I mean if he did it wasn't that it was he just wanted to know are are you are you mine or are you not and then when I was like I'm not I'm not ready to make that decision. I don't know anything. I feel really sick. I was so sick. It was like a very strong pregnancy. I was like out of it. Then I had to go to Nashville. I was really out of it there. Like, and hide it pretty much from people. Because it's like. Amazing book that you wrote. Yes. While like this doing timing the book. Of it. The yeah. timing of it. Yeah. Completely sabotaged it all. Um, yeah. And so, and then being really confused because I also was like, well, maybe I. Maybe I do want this regardless of this guy or maybe I want this because I want to work this out with him. I really don't know. I'm so messed up and confused on this. Like all of my hormones and all of my feelings and all of my traumas were just like cycling through me. And I'm talking about my book and my mother and yeah, heavy, that, all heavy. of it is happening and just money, like everything. Um, stability, my children, everything. And so by the time I got home, I was just, it was so heavy and he was not not good to me at all you know he came over and just sort of wanted to see if I would for his own ego or for whatever like if I would take him back or not and I kind of like read him up and down you know maybe emasculated him maybe just sort of did the thing where like we're gonna let's do the score let's like bring out a board and let's do some checks and balances here and like you don't take care of anything at all like you're not financially responsible you're an alcoholic you these are the issues this is how you treated me during this process this is how you gaslight me all the time this is just not stable like you're not stable you need to change and you know do you need me to stay and change do you need me to go away and change (laughs) you know just like bizarro like having a conversation maybe with a five-year-old who's like distracted by his like toy wagon. And so, yeah. And then later, once he didn't get what he wanted, he started to gaslight me again and be like, well, we never even talked about having children in the first place. But no, 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 we should have this kid. Okay, we should. You know, like, so just just with that, why when I went to go see my gynecologist, um, she offered me a procedure that same day and I took it. So wow. he wasn't even there. And I really, and I, and I wanted him there. And I remember trying to call him and him not picking up. And, you know, I have no way to like really reach him. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to call my really good girlfriend and she'll come and she'll support me through it. And I just kind of went through it alone and just like laid in bed for a week, bleeding and crying, and then did go see him. And he just kind of acted like 
Nothing ever happened. Because it didn't to him. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's the most enraging part of all of it. <laughs> and the um, yeah. not being able to see past his own nose. like Yeah. He doesn't even want to dignify it with paying for it so then i would try to get him to pay for it i would give him you know like at first this well the first abortion i didn't even ask him to pay for i don't e- I, I didn't even go there i was just like we were together it felt like like why even bring up the money all the money sort of like we're you know whatever like we go out to eat you pay i bet who cares oh money um i'm just you know it was it was a weird situation. My insurance got shut off like the day after I had it. So like my aftercare wasn't paid for. So I was just having to pay for my aftercare. So I just put myself on a payment plan. Like, you know what I mean? Like I talked myself into taking care of it and not being mad at him. And yet underneath it, the reality is still the reality that this is a mm-hmm. toxic, unfair, yeah. corrupt situation where the person should have always just been like, first of all, the least I could do is pay for everything and pay for your therapy and go to therapy with you to talk about this and what else do you need? Like, let me like, I should be buying you like groceries for that whole week and doing everything I can rather than what ended up happening. So with the second one, I was I was like staunch in, you know, my drive to get him to pay it. And after I squabbled with my insurance a bunch, got him to pay for most of the $1,200, you know, what was left wasn't much, but he refused, just refused, just plain refused over and over and over and over. Because then that would be what, like validating it, affirming it, dignifying it, when he neither confirms nor denies it at this point did anybody this is an off the wall question but i just wondered did anyone in the community say like maybe at the beginning of the relationship like hey warning did anyone you know like reach lean into you as a new person in that in the dating realm of him yes i just i I always think about that yeah it's like one of those things where well nobody could have like stopped me from falling in love with this person but it was more like well he's like a cartoon character like who can have a relationship with him in the first place it was more like blaming me like what did you expect it was more that it was like more like i'm not even a victim but it was like victim blaming it was more like what did you expect from him like he's a drunk or what did you expect from him he's kind of like out there or what did you expect from him he's kind of a loser and these same people would be like oh let me just book my reading here and sit up all night and drink wine with him anyway so he's good enough for you to do your business with and do whatever it is that you want to do you know smoke cigar pat your belly and kind of like blow kisses and act like you're in a cartoon with him but for me to try to have consequences in a regular relationship that's too much that's being crazy for women to hold people accountable and Mm -hmm. expect real relationships from them they're usually told to what did you expect? You know, mm-hmm. and we do that with big men. T- oh yeah, too. And yeah, you know, and all yeah, over our absolutely. culture. Like, what did you expect? He had too much power. Why did you go after him? You're gonna get burned. Do you really think you're gonna sue somebody like Harvey Weinstein? Da da da. Like, but in the end, every single every single tiny woman's voice it was in some men that came forward about anything and said actually there is some something we could agree on there is a reality we could agree on there is kind of a moral code we should be living by there is a way a community should participate in things there is a right and wrong we do have responsibilities we can't treat people like this this is like a huge aggression like let's stop this we actually can't act like um um, like 
well i don't even know because it's like a fake bohemian kind of bullshit world right it's like these beer goggled um like i said like this funhouse mirror where Mm -hmm. we cannot actually live our lives this way it's all just filler it is filler especially when you're chasing a dream that you think someone can help you get to it yeah and the or if you want to belong and what you belong to is trash. Yes. Yes. And That's you don't basically. want to see it. Or if you're, because you're 25 and you don't want to see it or you're 19 totally. or you're 43. Or 43. Like, you're exactly. 40. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You don't see it. You yes. just don't see it because the narrative that we feel and we're telling ourselves in those moments, it's not until afterwards. Yes. Did anyone help you in that situation? That's especially just even with the whole year of dealing with him specifically. Did anyone- Yeah, I did. I actually had Anne in the community and out of the community. I had a number of really amazing girlfriends, some writers, some, some not that while they still, you know, participated in that world and some of them you know maybe don't anymore they would just would be patient and be like I could see what you're moving through here I could see why Mm -hmm. you feel like you guys belong together and I could see that he's really bad for you and I see the way that he's treating you and I can't even imagine that somebody like you is letting somebody like him treat him this way and that's what happens like that incongruence that like you can't believe this happened to you. Like that's what happens in trauma, that depersonalization. Oh yeah. That um, the humiliation is so thick that you would rather manage it than believe that it happened and walk away from it a lot of times. And then when you do walk away from it, you know, you have a whole bag of diarrhea to deal with. But there were a lot, a lot of women that did support me privately that you know never like went to him were like you piece of shit so this man uh, that I told to you know print this out for him please and give it to him one last time because I am in collections um then after he confirmed to me that um my ex does not want to pay it um actually Venmoed me the money are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Which felt like really bad and really good. It felt really bad in this way where I was Whoa. like, I was like, ooh, it's on his own, like without telling my ex-boyfriend anything and they're friends and he already does his bidding. So it's like, here's this man who does not leave this toxic culture, does not leave this toxic situation, can't call him out on it, but just kind of goes behind his back to like fix it with money in the best way that he can fix it, that he thinks he's trying to do the right thing. And it, in you know, it is I guess the right thing he's just trying to help but it also feels like I got paid off with hush money because oh problem solved yeah oh yeah I have not once I didn't even go there in my headache so was it was it his money yeah it was that it was it was the person who answers who who works for free for him answering his email he paid out of his personal out of his personal pocket Because he feels that what my ex-boyfriend has been doing is so messed up. And there were other men that actually came to me Mm. during this situation, too, that were like, I can't. Like, what I... (sighs) I've seen him, like, in in bars being awful while you're in bed recovering from this. It's uh, unbearable. (sighs) Yeah. But the beat goes on. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of hope here and there. Yeah, something. But I I hear you, and you're right. Like, I understand what you're saying. Like the 
it could be hush money, right? It could feel like it's... The, he but, didn't mean it that way, but it's it like, what it is is like, okay, so it ends like, that problem. And yeah. I'm glad for it because I am a single mother of two kids who has to pay right. my bills. I don't have this extra money. Like I have to like right. make the money and it's his money to pay me. Um, He should have paid the whole thing and then some because I took care of everything. You know, at this point, he would have had like a kid to take care of and would have had to pay child support and would have to take care of a baby. But we did not go there. And so, um, yeah, so there is no restitution. There is no restoration. There is no any kind of like justice. There is no conversation. There is no bigger shift within, you know, this city I live in. It's just sort of like another thing that goes unnoticed and untouched because it's private and yucky where it's really not it's just like our bodies are not private and reproductive rights are not private and the way men abuse women financially or reproductively or emotionally or within communities or within these pecking orders it's not private it's all our problem wow sophia thank you so much for coming on oh Man, it takes a lot to publish a book. Like, it takes so much to actually write the book, let alone have it published. And there's book signings and and book readings, and it's just this book is in your face all the time. I can't imagine um, going through what she went through on top of that. I got to witness a book reading of hers just a couple weeks ago, and it was endearing and hilarious. Um, Sophia just has a spark, a feminist spark about her that like I said earlier, um, can't be found. It's rarely found. It's rarely, rarely, rarely found. If you want to know more about Sophia, go to uh, sophiashelmiova.com. The link is um, on our website along with her Instagram. Sophia picked for her nonprofit, it's called Rock and Roll Camp for Girls here in Portland, Oregon. And on their website, it says, we believe in empowering girls in our gender expansive community to turn it up in celebrating the power of music creation to instill confidence, amplify girls' voices, and catalyze social change. Hell yeah. And that is girlsrockcamp.org. Uh, my nonprofit forever is Rahab Sisters. Check it out. If you want to know more, please go to rahabsisters.org. It's also on our website. Um, follow us on We Believe You Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and I even got a LinkedIn up um, if that's your thing. Uh, write to us. Tell us what you think. Um, info at webelieveyou.com. That's we-believe-you.com. Um, let us know what you're thinking. Yeah, let us know. Should we be believers? Should I start a Facebook group? I don't know. Maybe we're not there yet. Maybe we are. In the meantime, keep those hearts open and lead with compassion. Thank you so much for listening. I love you. 